netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from fxguide.com. Hello and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. We're back after a brief winter hiatus, or I guess summer hiatus if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. I'm very excited to be doing podcasts again, and especially with this one. It's Mike Seymour speaking with VFX supervisor Dan Curry. Now, uh, I really found this conversation interesting, uh, especially for me, because, well, it's in a time period where the idea of having an online compositing suite doing visual effects was a new one. And, you know, I was in school at the time, and there really wasn't that career for me while I was in university. And so it was really interesting watching this progression, starting with the Star Trek, the Next Generation TV series, and the ones after that, of, of how this changed in episodic television and how visual effects were done. Um, and really certainly influenced my career doing online uh, digital compositing in first a linear suite and then a nonlinear suite and then onto Flame and other computer-based systems. Uh, so for me, uh, this conversation Mike has with Dan is really reliving a lot of the really cool stuff that I saw back in the late 80s and early 90s. So really fascinating. Um, they talk about uh, Dan's book a bit. Uh, we'll have a link to that book in the podcast article on Effects Guide, as well as the summary. But let's go ahead and cross this conversation now. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's Mike Seymour speaking with Dan Curry. Well, it's my great pleasure to be talking to Dan Curry. Dan, how are you, sir? Uh, very well today. Thank you so much. I cannot tell you how much I've been looking forward to uh, talking to you. And at so many levels, I think we could talk for hours, but I, I, won't, I won't do that to you. But uh, it's, I guess for me, one of the really great things uh, about talking to you is we've got this new book of yours that's just come out, uh, Star Trek, The Artistry of Dan Curry. Um, the subtitle uh, is VFX Weapons and Wonders from uh, Next Generation to Enterprise. And I guess the thing that I liked about this book the most, and I would have happily read any book that you were a part of, is that uh, it really captured visual effects at a turning point in the history of visual effects through the lens of some of the greatest TV uh, in terms of Star Trek, a, a complete golden age of multiple series. And so uh, before we get into that, I would just want to set the stage. So going into this period of uh, of Star Trek, you were coming from what? You were doing like major title design, if I'm not mistaken, Dan. Yeah, and, and visual effects. I, I, I was working at a company called Cinema Research Corporation, which has uh, gone the way of the buffalo. Uh, but uh, uh, we did uh, title sequences and visual effects for all sorts of films. And uh, sometimes I'd work on five or six features at once. And, uh, but it was great fun. And I had done a lot of work for Paramount and Peter Lauritsen, who had been the vice president at Paramount in charge of television post-production, called me up and asked me if I would be interested in uh, coming on to Star Trek as a visual effects supervisor. And I was getting tired of cinema research. So it was uh, an opportunity that sounded like great fun. Now, what year was that? Uh, that would be around 1981. Right. And so the work that you'd been doing uh, up until that point, like as you said, visual effects and title design, but that didn't stop, did it? Because, I mean, even though, of course, you were primarily focused on Trek, like I know uh, 
the the number of I should I mean name a couple of the films that you worked on though you have worked on so many but like uh, you would Fatal Attraction uh, Wayne's World um, and then of course some of the Star Trek films themselves uh, so yeah and also uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom for which uh, both of those I also uh, did the map sequences um, just extraordinary and, uh, uh, the original Top Gun. Um, and uh, yeah, back and to school right, was one of my favorites. The right stuff, the um, right stuff. I mean, just incredible. Uh, but I could talk to you about that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> so when you <laughs> moved over to uh, to uh, first being involved with the television uh, side of Star Trek, away from the feature film work, I believe it was a pretty limited engagement that you were expecting to be involved in. You were like sort of. Not well, expecting to have a full time position for for years. Well, Peter uh, Lauritsen uh, asked me if I would do him a favor, and he and uh, Gene Roddenberry and Bob Justman, uh, one of the most significant producers for Star Trek, uh, had the idea that they would be able to do forty stock shots that would suffice for the whole series: entering orbit, leaving orbit, flybys, and. Uh, they asked me if I would storyboard 40 shots. And so I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. And they showed me some photographs of the design of the Enterprise D that Andy Probert did. And so looking at those, I realized, okay, I enter orbit, leave orbit. And, uh, and then uh, I had, my background was in, in film and do, doing compositing with optical printers and matte paintings and oils and stuff like that. And so they uh, were working with CIS, Composite Image Systems, and Rob Legato, uh, who uh, had more experience in video, uh, they hired him to supervise. And about a week into the pilot, they realized it wasn't enough help. So they asked me if I would join the team, which of course I did. And uh, that's uh, that's how I got involved with it. And the idea of doing 40 shots for the series lasted about a week into the pilot. And Gary was involved at that point. Gary well. was Rob's uh, coordinator. And then my coordinator was Ronald B. Moore. And we uh, very quickly into the pilot realized that things would be more efficient if we broke up into two teams so we would alternate episodes. So one team would be available to be on set while the other team was doing post-production, shooting motion control miniatures, compositing, animation, stuff like that. And so the two team system lasted throughout the run from Next Generation through Enterprise. And at that stage, the model was coming from ILM, right? We had the original Enterprise model and some of the other models, like the Klingon Bird of Prey from ILM. And one of the problems with the seven-foot Enterprise that ILM had created was that it was Andy's original idea that the surface of the Enterprise would be absolutely smooth. So the seven-foot model on film looked pretty much like the 18-inch model because there were no details. And also being so big, it was incredibly time-consuming to get mat passes where you had to shoot the silhouette of the ship so you could make a hole in the background to put the ship in. And so after a while, we 
asked the late uh, great Greg Jean to build a four-foot version of the Enterprise for us. And we also asked him to do uh, a greater surface detail so that there were raised plates on the ship so that there were little surfaces to catch light, which gave it a, a greater sense of scale. It's ironic, isn't it? You had a smaller model and it looked bigger uh, when uh, photographed correctly. And the magic of film. <laughs> So this book, which you know could have been uh, like a novel-sized book, is actually more of like a coffee table book. And as I say, I mean, no disrespect to any other authors, but some of these books uh, from Star Trek, you feel like they're kind of just uh, servicing a kind of a fan fiction almost like extension of the universe and, and you don't learn a lot. This is the exact opposite of your book. Your book is just a wealth of knowledge. And I want to jump in, if I can, on a few points that, that really resonated with me. One of them was... Early on, um, you made this remarkable comment that uh, when you joined the Star Trek kind of uh, family or community, um, that in those early days, the work that you were doing was akin to medieval alchemy. <laughs> now, that, that, that's because that, that's good. Good. What do you mean by that? Well, at the time, we had to figure out ways to make everyday objects or everyday materials look like something they weren't. So a childhood playing with toys came in really handy for that uh, because it just inspired the imagination. So, for example, we discovered that liquid nitrogen was one of our best friends because it was these heavier-than-air vapors that we could make look like rifts in the time-space continuum. Uh, we could make them make it look like galaxies. We could and it would behave in strange ways so we could make it uh, become uh, holes in the time-space continuum. When, In one case, we even needed to clear the atmosphere of a planet. And so we made a vat of, uh, of black velvet that we could fill with about six inches of liquid nitrogen and discovered if we swatted it with a piece of cardboard, the air current would make it separate and then come back together like a tidal wave of vapors. And amazingly enough, uh, a few years later, I used that same element on Michael Jackson's music video, uh, Black or White, when we had Michael on the treadmill and he would move his hands like he was swimming. And each time his hand gesture separated, uh, he would reveal a new reality. And it was that liquid nitrogen swatted with cardboard that made that effect possible. <laughs> This uh, this incredible inventiveness is why you received umpteen Emmy nominations and, in fact, won seven Emmys. Am I correct on that? Yeah, yeah seven. I, I was robbed a few years. <laughs> <laughs> so, seven Emmys is not bad. That's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of uh, recognition from your peers. Okay, so this period starts with this kind of very um, sort of optical printer mentality. Um, and I think for a lot of people we sort of, or if we don't know, we think, oh, well, a lot of the innovation in digital uh, effects came from the feature film area. But I remember this time really well. Companies like um, Digital Magic, uh, CSI, where my um, co-founder, Jeff Huser, was working, uh, Post Group, POP down in and Santa Monica, like that whole area was just a flood with innovation. But it was really true, it seemed, that a lot of the digital craft especially in that trek universe happened first on television at what was then d1 digital 
but you know standard def resolution and then only later kind of moved to the feature film effects is that is that your recollection yes um and when paramount made it what at the time was considered a very courageous decision to do a relatively large budget epic sci-fi series and not have the final product be a film negative that they decided that they could do things uh, do the compositing on video and save a lot of time and money and that was the decision that made made it possible to do that much work on a tv schedule and for me it was interesting going from from film to video because i didn't really know much about video and getting going into the an edit bay was like going onto the bridge of the enterprise it was filled with all the strange gear and it took me a while to i knew what how i wanted images to go together and working with great compositors like fred Raimondi and paul hill and and others uh, that we were able to uh, i i we had to learn each other's language I'd say, well, I, I want a, a low density mat. And they say, what's that? And then they would say, well, we could do this. And we finally were able to uh, understand each other and achieve the same artistic goals by uh, learning each other's language. And for me, compositing came became very painterly. It was like you could actually see a shot evolve on a monitor as opposed to each time you tweaked a shot, it would be another trip to the lab and another day lost. Yeah. I mean, give me some technological reference here, because in the early days of digital, it was uh, still like a Grass Valley type switcher and abacus disc recorders, and you were like uh, ping-ponging from either side of disc recorders. And then it quickly moved to Harry, Henry um, from Quantel, and of course, Flame. Were you going, did that happen to you? Did you go into those edit suites that were looked like an analog one, but were actually being converted to digital with D1 machines and DCTs? Or did you jump straight to the, the computerized uh, workstation model? Well, th that took a while. Our, our first edit base, we were working in one-inch analog videotape. Oh, wow. And one of, the, one of the problems with that is each time you would dupe a generation, the yeah. image would be degraded. So if you did too many dupes, it would look, uh, look terrible. So we would figure out ways to minimize the amount of duping we would do to create a shot and the big breakthrough was for us was d5 which allowed a it became the first true digital format we could work in that then we could with impunity dupe forever and uh, and the shot making became even more painterly and you could tweak different layers and and uh look for the shot you you were hoping to get i am um, i of course had friends working on series back then and i have to confess dan and i hope paramount doesn't come running after me but i actually got a copy of the elements d1 reel from next uh gen which was basically just a reel of uh laser pulses and flashes and lines and and just and it's just struck me that there was uh it was surviving on a body of knowledge because you'd have to know what was on this tape. It wasn't like today when you can sort of search up things online and, and pull things. There, there was, even though it had moved to digital, it, it was still stored on tape and that tape required you to scroll through it and find things and know things. 
And the rate at which you were generating elements and this idea that you could reuse them and, and come back to those elements, it was, it was a small feat of, I don't know, memory to just map out how you'd pull something off. I mean, if you were looking at a script, I imagine you had to kind of, oh, well, I need that new, but I can reuse that. And that would exist over there at that. I mean, it just must have been quite, quite a mental feat to put together shots. Well, a lot of that uh, goes to uh, the incredible organizational skills of David Takamura, who realized we were, he was our uh, visual effects associate. And he realized that we wasted a lot of time in the edit bay looking for stuff. So he did something called the elementary yellow pages. So Rob or I would think about something like, oh, remember that explosion we did? Or how about that time I bounced a laser off a beer can and uh, shot that with an old Mitchell camera? Maybe we could use that for this. And uh, so David's elementary yellow pages uh, made us uh, made it easy for us to find those elements because there were hundreds of them and they would range from explosions to even one time I wanted a, a character to be... Uh, uh, particleized, and now we can do that with particle animation. But I went out into the uh, office, and they had uh, ashtrays on stanchions that had uh, white sand in them. So I took a piece of black cardboard, stole a, a couple of cups of white sand, and uh, arranged it in the shape of the actor, and then blew it with an air jet. And as the sand moved away, and then we used that as an element to make the actor uh, become particles. I uh, I was going to discuss this later, but now you've brought that up. That whole idea of uh, innovative, creative problem solving with physical things. I like the example in the book of the Vulcan tear. Can you explain that uh, that story? It's so simple and so interesting. Uh, the actor um, was having a tough time on set, forcing himself to have a tear. So they just shot the scene without his lacrimation and. Uh, uh, so when we got the shot, we needed a tear. So I, uh, we were at the post group, and I took a black plastic ring binder that had the script in it and got a glass of milk and a soda straw and dribbled a, some milk onto the, the notebook cover. And because milk is opaque white and the notebook was black, we were able to pull a contrast mat off it. And then we just shifted and brightened the actor's uh, skin to, to make it look like a transparent tear and then compress the mat and so we could have a little highlight on it and that's how Sarek cried. I got to tell you, I just feel like today people would be like, oh great, we'll just do that with a fluid sim. You know, like that just seems, because it works, it just completely looks like a tear and I just feel like these incredibly simple things, as you say, off the back of the script, uh, it's not that they are the hardest thing in the world to do, in fact they're the easiest thing in the world to do, but to have the the, I don't know, the imagination to, to creatively solve those problems with just what you've got in the edit bay effectively. It's just remarkable. Hey, can I ask you something else? We're going to get back to your title design because I was walking around NAB in whatever year it was. And now I was from uh, Sydney and we were a little behind the US in the only way to watch Star Trek in those days was on air. And so I'm walking around NAB and I start noticing some amazing stuff on some of the showreels on a couple of the stands. And I'm like, what was that? And I kind of run over and have to stand at some booth uh, for at least about 10 minutes until the showreel looped around and it showed part of your title sequence from Voyager. And I just, I just stood there in awe. It was like, you know, there are a few moments where you just go, okay, we just leapt. That was a 
that was a step up. Like there's a lot of stuff you go, I know how they're doing that and that's whatever. And then this was just one of those big step ups. Can you just discuss that Voyager title sequence? Because it set the tone so well for the show, but also it really was just remarkably good. If you compare that to earlier title sequences, obviously due to technology, it was just so much more advanced, so much more interesting. I'd just love well, to hear about how that came to be. Well, uh, the good news for me was that the producers were very busy and they basically let me create my dream of uh, space travel, where I'd like to go. And there were a lot of heroes involved with that sequence. There was certainly the team at Image G, uh, David Stipes, who I was able to, uh, who was the Matt camera operator when I was working on the original Galactica and Buck Rogers at Universal Heartland. And David uh, did a lot of the motion control work. Then, of course, Santa Barbara Studios uh, did the CG work for us. Um, and Eric Timians helped uh, do some of the storyboarding. And so, and it was, there were a lot of people involved, but it was a hybrid of technology, including motion control miniatures. Even one of the camera, uh, the planets was a, uh, a, an acrylic painting I did on a disc of black cardboard. And that's later in the show. So it's a mixture of, of um, CG, uh, uh, freehand painting, uh, and motion control miniatures. And one of the things about the, the Voyager model that was a big deal at the time was that the wings, when Voyager went to warp, would fold up. And Tony Meininger, the great model maker who, who constructed that model for us, uh, went to great lengths to find these super high-tech miniature uh, chains that would be able to be operated by a motion control motor that we could do repeat passes uh, that were perfectly accurate. And just to make the wings fold up was considered a huge deal at the time. And now with CG, ships can do all sorts of things and all sorts of kinetic elements. But then it was uh, it was tough. There was another aspect of the Voyager model that that was unique is I wanted to, when we got close to the ship, be able to see into the windows and see that uh, perspective parallax as the camera went by the ship. And so I went around the sets and photographed it on slide film and gave Tony the slides, and he would bend little slides inside the windows <laughs> of the model uh, to make little little backlit cycloramas. Voyager was the last show that had a model, is that right? Like a ship model? Like yeah, That was the last one. And then uh, when we went on to Enterprise, that was the first all-CG Star Trek show. Yeah. Um, and you were saying you were doing that work at, uh, at Image G, right? Maybe you could just run through, when you were doing mocap, um, the sort of passes that you would do. Like what would a typical shot be in terms of pass? I know some of them by the time you get to Deep Space Nine, we're off the dial, but just on a normal kind of Voyager mocap. Yeah, for for Voyager or uh, the Enterprise D, it would require seven passes of the ship doing exactly the same thing. And the ship would be mounted on a modified gearhead that would be normally used on a camera, and the ship could roll, pitch, and, and yaw, and that would allow us to... Uh, light one place and all the 
forward and backward and up and down motion came from the camera running up and down on the track. And the camera also had a tower that it could go up and down or east-west. And you would have to shoot the, the beauty pass, which would be the light on the hull in the, the ship's natural environment. Then there were several different window passes. There were the running light passes, and each one required a different exposure. Uh, there were the the uh, nacelles that had the warp drives, and we would shoot that with a uh, with a diffusion filter to create the illusion of it glowing. And the same for the uh, impulse drive. So each simple each simple shot would have seven passes, and then if there was something nearby like an explosion. We would also shoot um, interactive light from that light source. And sometimes we would cover the the enterprise with black aluminum foil and then spread out black uh, steel wool. And there's oil on steel wool. So if you the black aluminum foil protected the model and the by lighting it in one spot, fire would emanate from where you lit it, and that would be the interaction for uh, a, an enemy phaser or a, a disruptor hitting the, the hull and spreading out over the ship. Yeah, um, I have to say, another, setting fire to to, uh, to that steel wool is a, a great old-school visual effect technique. It really does spark uh, as if it's made of magnesium. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And the other uh, problem which Gary Hutzel solved was uh, shooting the mat pass or obtaining the silhouette. And originally, we used big white cards and not lighting the ship. But the problem was each card would be at a slightly different angle to the the light source. So each one would have a different degree of brightness. And it was a lot of trouble to get an even silhouette. And uh, Gary had the idea that if we used day glow fabric day glow orange and ultraviolet light it it gave an even luminescence despite the fact that, that whatever angle the light source was and that just saved us an immense amount of time shooting mat passes yeah i have to say i remember we used to shoot lots of blue screen and green screen i remember hearing about red screen and i was like red screen and then uh, i heard about the model guys doing this uh, ultraviolet and we just nicknamed it red screen and uh, it was a, a source of enormous fascination to me, um, this idea of doing this uh, red screen and how good the mats were that came off it. But like you described seven passes then. In the book, you discussed that on Deep Space Nine, you got up to like 100 mocap passes. That's in it. I mean, we've got to remind people, this is, this is episodic television where you had like seven working days effectively to shoot something. That's a ridiculously huge amount of work. Yeah, we were not strangers to 80-hour weeks and. And oh, I remember God. doing the finale of Deep Space Nine. We got everybody on the visual effects team and just divided the shots because we had 350 shots to do in three weeks. And uh, there were a couple of weekends, nobody went home. we just grab a nap on the couch. So for everyone listening, I'm just going to read something from the book uh, written by uh, Kate, who played Captain Janeway. And because Dan's too modest, I'm going to just embarrass him by doing this. This is one of many quotes from the book from the key cast discussing the role of visual effects and in particular Dan's role. Let me just read a little bit of this quote. It's incredible. I must have met Dan Curry very early on, but it was only 
as time went on that I realized that he was a covert genius behind the entire thing. Everyone would sort of go quiet down when, uh, quiet down when Dan entered the soundstage. I remember saying to someone, why does everyone whisper around Dan? And they said, because he's a bona fide genius behind the whole thing. Go ask Rick Berman how important Dan Curry is. And then I started to watch the visual effects with a new eye. That, that is only part of her quote, right? And it's terrific. But Well, James, uh, Kate was exceptionally kind. <laughs> but, but you must have had interesting relationships with these actors like Kate and, uh, and others on the shows. Of course, you mentioned um, uh, some of the producers and stuff, but, and I'd like to loop back on some of the visual effects artists, but Rick Berman in particular, obviously those people behind the scenes, but just if you could for a second, it was an enabling role you had in helping them visualize what it was that they were acting to so they could make good acting choices. Uh, well, that was important because they were sometimes having to interact with something they couldn't see or uh, be in a place that wasn't real and they were in front of a, a blue or a green void. So I felt it was important to make it make their performance as easy for them as possible. So sometimes when we'd have a creature that was CG, I'd make a, a large uh, slot puppet out of foam core so they could see how big the creature was and where they were supposed to look. Or um, I remember working with Kate when we had these giant macro viruses that were invading the ship. And, uh, and a lot of the technical stuff we would do in second unit and so Kate had to stab one of the giant viruses, and and uh, so I just put a styrofoam ball pointed painted blue on a on a stick, and had Kate stab it. That way, she could let go of the knife, and I could flutter it down. And uh, the cast was great. They they loved working with visual effects, and they were super cooperative. And uh, I remember on the the pilot of Star Trek Enterprise. Scott Bakula and Connor Trenier were supposed to be flying under the ship in a little pod and inspecting it. it was their first view of, of Enterprise. And they wanted to know what it would what it would look like, where, where they were. So I grabbed two paper plates, taped them together, took a piece of foam core and cut out the nacelles and the back of the ship and folded the wings up and it gave a an unreasonable facsimile, but I could hold it up and say, okay, you guys are flying under under the ship right here. And uh, I think Scott still has that model. So sticking with Voyager for a second, can we talk about Tom Paris, the character that uh, that uh, Robert McNeil played? Because in the show, he goes into the holodeck and uh, plays Captain Proton. So in other words, he's a show inside a show effectively. You kind of set fire to the actor. You must have had a, that must, yeah, you got to tell that story. Well, Robbie uh, was always a good sport and it was, and we're, we're still friends and we've worked together on other projects since. And Robbie showed the quality of his character at that incident. Um, the, we actually got the real jetpack and outfit from Commando Cody and the Lost Planet Airmen. And <laughs> and uh, it was these steel tubes. So special effects supervisor Dick Brownfield had this idea that we would put these industrial sparklers inside the steel tubes and they would make sparks and it would look like 1930s visual effects. 
sure everybody's cool. But thank God Dick had the idea to put Robbie in a fireproof uh, racing car driver's suit underneath his costume. So we had Robbie on a big, uh, like a seesaw, and we had made a mold of his body so he could lay on it comfortably. And so Robbie's flying around with his arms outstretched. And uh, so Dick lights the um, lights the sparklers, and suddenly I notice Robbie's pants are on fire. So we immediately called for our fire extinguishers, which, which we had standing by, and put out the fire on Robbie's butt. But uh, as I said, Robbie showed his medal as as a as a man by not being fussy at all, being totally cool with it, and uh, uh, he earned the respect of every person on the sound stage that day. But you needed to earn their respect as well, because one of the problems with acting is you're really putting yourself out there, and it's it can seem absurd at the best of times. You, you know, you're effectively opening yourself up to what I would, if I was acting, because I'm not an actor, I would be embarrassed to do. And with visual effects, doubly so, right? Because as you say, you're acting to a couple of paper plates or a, or a ping pong ball or a tennis ball. And so they have to have faith in you that you're not going to leave them high and dry looking like a fool or that their acting will come off as insincere because they're looking in the wrong place or they're just, it comes off as hokey. So you seem to have built up tremendous trust and you didn't seem to fall into that trap where they considered visual effects to be either a waste of time or a, um, or something that stopped them from being able to act. I don't think the cast ever had a problem with that because they knew that the visual effects team was there to create the world, to give verisimilitude to their performances. And I think after each one, each actor had seen a few episodes, they knew what we could deliver. And I think that trust was there. And we also trusted them to cooperate. And and sometimes we had to be very picky about exactly where they had to stand or exactly had to, they had to move their arm. And so they uh, uh, that that trust was necessary. And I think it's a matter of personality that they the actors were were all very gregarious and and i think they liked fooling around with that stuff you also behind the scenes had extraordinary talent at each of those companies we were talking about i mean we could probably discuss for an hour but i mean just a couple of examples like at cis that was when price petrol was there who would go That's on correct. to digit go on to digital domain and uh apollo 13 and uh titanic i mean the guy just has forgotten more about visual effects than i'll ever know um and, and i noticed in the book you mentioned steve scott in passing steve scott goes on to become one of the uh world's greatest uh, colorists and uh, he was in one of your comp teams at one of the other companies you had a lot of talent uh post group obviously was a powerhouse back then behind uh fred um yeah it was a it seemed like an exceptional time that you you were do you think that that was a moment in time? I mean, just so many of those people from that era uh, have gone on to have such amazing careers and were so talented. Well, I, I think that underscores the fact that there was no single hero of Star Trek visual effects. It was a, a team effort, and we were really lucky to work with so many brilliant people who were actually dedicated to the craft. And Eric Nash uh, at... Image G went on to 
become a supervisor doing iRobot and uh, that incredible uh, yep. uh, dogs in uh, Call of the Wild. And so it, it it was the people that made going to work a joy because the we didn't really have a home life. We were we were working all the time. And if it wasn't for the quality of the people and and the trust and respect and genuine liking we had for each other, it would have been a miserable time. Yeah, yeah, just really uh, an incredible thing. But the other thing that struck me as as harsh is that as we move the clock forward, and and obviously the feature films are catching up and doing amazing uh, digital work. Um, I'm going to use the example of the Borg Queen because I think in the film, the original introduction of the Borg Queen with her spine hanging down and she uh, comes down past Data in the um, in that sequence is just exquisite filmmaking. The trouble yeah, John is, Noel. yeah, absolutely, and it's it's executed really well. It's visually dramatic. It's tremendously relevant to the story. It isn't just gratuitous. But if I just turn that on its head for a second, you're also faced with a problem that the Borg Queen turns up a lot in, say, Voyager, and now you're trying to hit a mark of quality that really you've had to hit all the way along, which is hey, the audience has seen this sort of character, if not this exact character, in a feature film with mega budgets, with heaps of time, and and uh, and you've got to replicate that in a way that in no way seems inferior because, hey, we've seen it, and the audience doesn't think episodic budget, feature film budget. They just say it's all Trek. Well, yeah, and we actually wanted to uh, show a different aspect of her construction. Um, and when we built the Borg Queen set for Voyager for that uh, couple of those sequences, when we, we see her constructed, uh, I had the idea that let's make the, the floor drop away as if uh, mechanical parts could kinetically rise up from the floor and, and assemble her automatically. And uh, thank you, John Tesca, uh, the, uh, one of the great CG artists, uh, John was able to match the constantly blinking lights on the very shiny surfaces that he created. And so I, I boarded out the sequence how I wanted it. And there's something interesting, too, when the Borg Queen uh, in the, the Endgame episode where she kind of takes herself apart, uh, the I put pink cloth around each time a different appendage was removed so that John Tesca, the who would do the CG and the compositing could see where I wanted the arm removed or, and so he could rotoscope and follow that, that point and cover it up with a, a CG uh, stump. And uh, so that was another uh, example of, you know, a, a great artist, uh, John Tesca, understanding what I was hoping to see. And also one of our, our goals with visual effects is we understood that even if one of our shots was on screen for a few seconds, for that short period of time, it was the star of the show and it had to advance the story. So the only reason for visual effects to exist was to help support and tell the story. Story is king. You mentioned the physical stuff there. I was lucky enough to visit the Voyager set. In fact, I one of my favorite things of all time is I got to sit in Janeway's chair and discovered that her chair leant forward a bit more than Jakote's, so she could always stand up quicker because she was coming from a higher sitting position. 
But I remember when I was visiting the set uh, that somebody told me that Babylon 5, which was a completely separate show, of course, but had visited uh, Trek and they were stunned at how well your sets were made and how well the art department had physically, you know, made things as opposed to they were kind of putting up with much more temporary structures. It must have been a joy to work with such a, a professional and polished actual art department, scenic department, and uh, physical props people on the actual set. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, Richard James and uh, Herman Zimmerman were both brilliant at, in their production design, and their art departments were filled with really brilliant people. And uh, so, uh, and the effort was on the screen. I actually took Ron Thornton, who was one of the great pioneers of of uh, digital uh, CG effects. Uh, I took him around the sets of Star Trek one time, and he was one of those people who were amazed at the quality of our sets. Yeah. So, so we've been discussing your role in visual effects. But one of the reasons I wanted to bring up the physical sets and being on set is that you first did, I presume, second unit directing, um, but and then I'm going to in a second discuss actual uh, main unit directing. But you had this role in second unit that I thought was fascinating. And one of the things that just never occurred to me, it makes complete sense, is you would shoot a lot of close-ups at one stage, right? Like of not the actors, but say the actors' stand-ins, hands, because we didn't want to waste time on the production, getting all the actors to do sort of close-ups. Can you talk about that? I mean, it makes sense, but it seems also kind of bizarre that what I thought was Patrick Stewart's hands pressing buttons was actually somebody else's. Yeah, those were uh, were called inserts. And the editors, when they're cutting a show, said, oh, I need a close-up of, of Captain Picard pushing a button. And, uh, of course, they didn't shoot that, as you say. And they would hire a hand double and we would go on the set or we could reconstruct a part of a set. We had these little dirt pads to do things if they were digging around on a planet and that's, uh, and they would help clarify the story for the audience. And one time we had a scene where Patrick was supposed to press a button and the hand double they hired had injured his finger and he couldn't hold his forefinger up. It, there were no tendons in it. And in order to solve that problem, I took a piece of welding rod, wrapped it around his forearm under his costume, added a little tape on it, and then put a dab of super glue on the end of the welding rod to hold his finger straight and made sure that he kept the welding rod uh, away from camera so that it would look okay. And then you move from second unit directing to first unit directing. And am I right in saying Birthright Part Two in uh, in Next Gen was that first? Yeah, that you, was it. Yeah. yeah, which which is great, right? I mean, it's a terrific thing. But did you find that? You, I guess I'm, it's a curious question. But did you find your visual effects kind of helped you doing the directing or hindered it in the sense that I know some people would just be like, "Well, I know I can fix that in post, so I'll just." add more work to visual effects so that I can keep moving? Or was it more like, hey, no, I want to get this right because I know how much work we've got to do in visual effects later and, and I don't want to make those guys have to suffer? Well, I think uh, uh, especially when you're even working as a visual effects supervisor on, on set, um, you have to determine uh, it, where is the best effort done. So sometimes we would intentionally do things the wrong way uh, visual effects wise knowing that it would be a, a small group of people who would fix it rather than holding up 
a crew of 80 to 100 people on on set and the expense entailed in that so and in directing birthright uh, it was um uh, most of the decisions i wanted to get it on the set right and there wasn't a lot of visual effects in that particular episode so it was really a, a character episode you you had a very special still do a very special relationship with uh michael dawn who played wolf and it was a kind of a wolf episode i mean obviously everyone's in it but he's um his sort of a lead story arc. Um, maybe you could discuss that. And did was that a relationship that immediately you guys hit it off? Like how did that relationship? Uh, we, we pretty much immediately hit it off. And uh, there was one funny thing early into the series where uh, I'd never seen Michael out of makeup. Oh, really? Because he would go get there at 4 o'clock in the morning with the hours it took to get his makeup on. And so whenever I saw Michael, it was always Worf. Uh, I would recognize his voice. And I remember one time walking across the lot and some guy comes by and says hello. And I started ch chatting with him. And he says, it's me, Michael. And uh, I understand actually his original headdress was stolen. So his, his sort of cranial... Uh, I think it was uh, Michael Westmore because he did such great uh, visual effects, special effects makeup. Um, that's one of the reasons his uh, costume transformed, that somebody actually nicked the prosthetics. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but, yeah, I mean, his his acting is great, but also he had this, uh, as discussed in your book, transition from being this kind of tough guy that just thumped things to being a much more controlled um disciplined kind of martial arts uh warrior with a nobility and uh an honor code that that all came through heavily influenced by you personally right well uh, that happened well first of all we have to recognize michael's acting ability and the incredible gravitas he brought to that role and originally Worf was considered a kind of background character that would just sit around and growl and and uh, and there was an episode where Worf was to inherit a traditional Klingon weapon. And even as a kid, I always could spot movie weapons that were designed to be cool, but were ergonomically silly. And they suggested something that looked like a pirate's cutlass with an extra blade sticking off at a weird angle that was utterly impractical. and. In my protracted, misspent youth, I lived in Asia for years and studied martial arts quite seriously. And I had been imagining this weapon. Uh, and so I said, we can't do that to the Klingons. We need something that makes sense ergonomically, but also has never been seen before. So I made a phone core version of the Batleth, went into Rick Berman and said, look, Rick, how about giving Worf something like this? It'd be original and we could do all these tricks and look how this decapitation flange works and you can disembowel people with this trick. And uh, Rick, of course, uh, said, uh, well, if it was two inches shorter, I would approve it. And then he brought in uh, Dennis Madalone, the stunt coordinator, who looked at it and said, I can't work with that. That's terrible. And then I showed Dennis a lot of the moves I made up for it. And he said, oh, that's good. And so Dennis immediately became an evangelist for the Batleth. And Michael loved it. And the other actors loved it. Uh, so that's how the 
uh, Batleth came into existence. And when Michael signed on to Deep Space Nine, I got this funny phone call from him. And it was, Daniel, I need a new weapon. And <laughs> so, so I said, what's that? And he said, I want something I can hide behind my back, but it's still bad enough that it can take out a Batleth if somebody is skilled enough. So Michael came over to my house and I showed him a collection of weapons I'd brought back from Asia, including a uh, a Kara sword, which I obtained in Western Nepal. And I said, well, why don't we use the tip of this blade? It's got this cool downward hook. And then we made up the the rest of it, wanting to make sure that there were cutting surfaces. I wanted it to be able to be thrown like a hatchet and be used both forehand and backhand. And so we made a cardboard one reinforced with popsicle sticks and went out in the backyard and worked out with it. And that became the Mechleth, which didn't change. Yeah. Michael actually requested or tried to make sure you were always on set when he was doing any of these action sequences, because I mean, you're quite modest about your martial arts, but you're like really well trained in martial arts. And that is an interesting role, isn't it? Like it's a choreography that then melds with stunt work, which melds, of course, with Michael's performance. Um, and you guys seem to have just really developed a fine balance there where everybody was working in sync. Uh, that's true. But also kudos to the stunt department. Uh, Tommy Morga, who is um, uh, Jonathan Frank's regular stunt double, uh, Tommy became a master of the Batleth. And uh, uh, Armin Shimmerman had to do a Batleth scene. So uh, I spent a couple of days working with him, showing him the tricks, and he took videos of it, and he was very serious about it. Um, but, it, yeah, it, it's a, a, a great working relationship. And sometimes there were scenes on Next Gen where Worf would be teaching a class, uh, kind of like a, a Tai Chi class, and I would actually be standing next to the camera so Michael could see me and I would be doing the movements. And then <laughs> that's how those were done. And tell me about the lost video that you guys took as an idea to, I think, Rick Bergman, or what was certainly to the producers uh, that, that never came to be. That was just hysterical. Yeah, that, Michael and I had this idea of doing a, a, a one of those companion videos for a dvd uh where michael was went to see his old master who would uh for a brush-up lesson in in using the the batleth and we figured we could do it really cheap because we had plenty of stock shots of klingon ships i had done a matte painting of a klingon lamasery in in the mountains based on the canadian rockies and uh and we just shoot it in one of our cave sets and so we had written an outline and it was really cool. And I would be kind of like Yoda to Luke Skywalker at, because Michael and I have such a considerable size difference. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, we thought it would be great fun. And Rick liked it. Uh, the producers liked it, but somehow or other it got, it came to the attention of the lawyers and uh, the lawyers were afraid that, uh, because it was done for training that people could get hurt if they copied some of the moves. And so they kiboshed uh, the idea of doing that video. 
So we Which never got the Klingon pointing. martial arts training video for fear that kids would kill each other with, <laughs> with their own made toys. Hey, um, you, tell me what it was like for you uh, when it transpired that uh, now, so many years later, uh, Picard um, appeared. And of course, that uh, Michael and the rest of those uh, cast members who weren't in the uh, season two are coming back for season three. That must have been a yeah. great joy. Uh, well, uh, and uh, also there's a really wonderful production designer in Terry Metalis, the showrunners, really a great guy. I've known him since he was a PA. And uh, so they had a really fabulous group on on that show. And they somebody had proposed a sword, and Michael, uh, or Worf rather, had to have a weapon that was uh, large enough that he could cut somebody in half, but it had to make ergonomic sense. And so Michael felt it didn't look right and sent me a picture of it. And he said, what do you think? And I said, well, that flange on the tip would prevent somebody from stabbing another person any more than an inch and a half. So it's not, not particularly good. So as a favor to Michael, I designed a new weapon, which um, uh, I could show you later. Um, Michael has a uh, – uh, and so I designed something that – reflected elements of the Batleth and the Mechleth, and it makes great ergonomic sense, and you will see Worf use it to great effect in that episode. Yeah, it's it's marvellous. When they announced the uh, cast uh, rejoining for Picard Season 3, there was a small post on Twitter that I really adored, which included your name and, and many others of people that had worked on original Star Trek that were also being come back, coming back in many of the uh, roles behind the scenes. And I thought it was really respectful that they were acknowledging not only are they getting the stars back, but they were getting back, um, you know, many of the craftspeople that had worked in the various departments in, you know, various roles, of course, uh, but terribly respectful. And it must give you an amazing sense of closure to have that kind of complete loop of, uh, of the show. Yeah, I really appreciated it. It was nice to be remembered. And the... Uh, another thing I did for Picard was uh, I did a series of illustrations for a, a Klingon manuscript. Excellent. Can I ask you something? When we were talking decades ago, years ago, I shouldn't say decades ago, <laughs> it was a while ago. It, it was around the, time of, around the time of, of just after Deep Space Nine was on air and stuff. Anyway, I was talking to you about something and it came up in conversation that there was a consideration, at least I think this is how I remember it, a consideration of making a fully digital character yeah, that was a main cast member and it was not possible. And so Odo becomes uh, on Deep Space Nine, a partial CG character that would have effect shots when he um, went into a gelatinous state. Um, just not speaking, not, not after trade secrets, this has nothing to do with Picard. Uh, if you're listening audience, this is no, I'm not hinting at anything, but do you think we're far off being able to have a show like a Star Trek that would have a fully digital regular cast member? What's your your, your professional opinion? Yes, I, I think we're. I think it's within the realm of possibility now. And even on Enterprise, we had uh, uh, interesting fully digital characters. We had the Aquatics, and we had uh, on Voyager we had Species Eight Four Seven Two. Yep, which was fully deep, uh, and that was inspired by uh, when I was in grad school. I did a 
my thesis project in theater was a, a play set in an alien prison, and one of the characters was a tripod character, and but that character was comedic. But I decided to uh, propose a, a tripod for eight four seven two, and uh, we uh, uh, and but it became a horrific character. But th that that was fully CG, and although there was a the crystal so in that entity, case that yeah the crystal entity, that, but those characters are non-humanoid, non-kind of bipedal standard kind of. I mean, I could see. Obviously, and there have been in other shows, um, sort of like blobby type characters or whatever. But but as a cast member that could emote and carry a scene dramatically with the subtext that you get from these great actors and that hold their own against the Michael Dorns or Patrick Stewart's or Kate's or whoever, you think we could do that now? Yeah, and especially with motion capture, because motion capture allows uh, a lot of physical nuances that. Try, just trying to do animation by itself uh, would not lend itself to that that powerful and and convincing a performance. So yes, I think it's uh, it's only a matter of time. And now, the the brilliant work being done with the latest tools in visual effects, um, it, it's at a point where if you can imagine it, it can be done. Since. Just quickly, since Star Trek, obviously you've done a bunch of other stuff, including uh, The Gifted two seasons. Um, one, something that I noticed in your, uh, you know, bio, whatever, uh, background thing that I didn't know about, I'd love to just quickly check on you. At some point you got to work with the real NASA's vision team. What was that about? Oh, I, I've done a, a lot of stuff with NASA. Uh, I had done some things with um, uh, some presentations with NASA talking about the symbiotic relationship between visual uh, science fiction and real science and how a, a practical person will discover something and then a dreamer will say, well, now that we know that, what about this? So science fiction's job is to go, now that we know this, what if that? And then somebody dreams that and then a real scientist will say, oh, well, that's a great idea. Let's find out a way to make that real. And so, uh, and then the, the NASA vision team was planning to do uh, a survey figuring out how they could, uh, how much bandwidth would be needed for communication satellites around the world and wanted to know how the entertainment industry might evolve and how much bandwidth that would require. And I talked about the, uh, the incredible uh, advances in, in uh, resolution that it won't be long before we're looking at 17 K images shot at 120 frames a second that have no motion blur whatsoever. And, uh, and what that would entail for, uh, satellite demands and how much NASA would have to prepare and the fact that how filmmaking is done anymore that you might have a director in New Zealand who has a crew in Zimbabwe, another crew in Canada, and another crew in Australia. And they're all working at once and he's watching it or she is watching it uh, on monitors and controlling all this. But all those dailies have to be sent via satellite. So the 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 amount of data that has to be transmitted is 
is a tsunami rather than a trickle. And so I, I was able to help them understand where, where, and I, I checked with a lot of people in the industry before going there to uh, uh, plan for the bandwidth they would need to, uh, to deal with it, to handle this volume of data that is only going to grow. And not only that, not only in filmmaking, but in distribution, because physical distribution will go away too. I have to say that probably the the example I use the most of what you just described in terms of that relationship uh, being symbiotic is the uh, holodeck, because you can draw a line from the holodeck straight to the virtual production stages used on Strange New Worlds and uh, um, and the immersive environments of these LED uh, stages, but also beyond that, far beyond that, the notion of uh, light fields of being able to generate uh, completely view-dependent, realistic uh, environments has inspired such a range of um, researchers. And I talk to a lot of these researchers where, you know, go through things and time and time again, they'll be like, yeah, we're just trying to make a, at the end of the day, we'd want to make a holodeck. Like it's the shorthand for the inspiration for countless man years of research. Um, and of course, that all appeared first on Star Trek, The was it in the pilot i remember when uh when uh they walked into that sort of forest thing it was the first time i ever saw a holodeck yeah i, I forget where it started but it also goes back to robert heinlein's the illustrated man there's a uh, uh one of the short stories in that book is about a family that has a room that they can go in and it, it's the african belt and nice. so uh, and that's Gene Roddenberry's genius that he came up with that. I'm going to have need to finish up, but I do want to just flag one thing. At the end of the book, which is, as I've said, is just a joy to read, there is a really great section where you get a peek at your art, your actual personal artwork gallery. There's not enough pages, in my opinion, but there are pages devoted to that work. And you've mentioned a few times, but uh, for those that haven't understood as we've been talking, then you've got real... Um, obviously professional use of this artistic ability in painting matte paintings, but you have a real interest in actual fine art. And uh, when did that start? And are you still painting as much as you were today? Yeah. Um, I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't an artist. I think people that everybody I know who is an artist uh, from early school, uh, their friends were all saying, Hey, you can draw this, you can do that. And and I think it's just like people that are can sing with perfect pitch or people that can pick up an instrument and figure out how to play it in a short time. Uh, it's just a, a gift that you're given without really having done anything to deserve it. And it, it's a way to react to the phenomenon of being a, alive and and express about it. Uh, when COVID first happened, I I was one of the early COVID people and I went to the hospital. And when I got home, I had to spend several weeks in isolation in bed. And I did a whole series of what I call stream of consciousness art, where I just start with a couple of strokes and just explore where those lines were and kind of abandon any attempt at photorealism. And it just became a pure expression. And I think the joy I take in just creating images, um, 
I, I can't not do that any more than I can not breathe. I, I love those finished pieces at the back of the book, but one of my favorite pictures is the, um, it, it's basically like Duchamp's nude descending the stairs shot that you drew clearly with a piece of paper and a pencil in an edit suite showing what the editor was like trying to capture their phonetic energy uh, editing in a traditional edit by yeah. so earlier in the book. And I loved that. Uh, that uh, I don't know. I'm so glad you kept that, but it's just. Yeah, I, I still have it. And it's the great Peter Moyer was the subject. Well, he, he joins a pantheon of marvelous people that you've uh, worked with. And thank you so much for taking time to walk us through it. The book is from uh, Titan Books and uh, I'm sure you can get it at Amazon. That's where I got it. And it's, uh, it's great. I'd highly recommend it. And Dan, it's just, as always, such an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. I, I hate to geek out so much, but uh, yeah, it's terrific. And unfortunately, if you're listening to this, you can't see, but uh, I'm actually having a peek at uh, props from upcoming season uh, three of Picard, but you'll have to wait till that uh, goes to air. Uh, but Dan, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dan, for taking the time to chat with us. And again, I had to laugh at some of the stories in that, especially uh, I didn't realize that there's actually one inch compositing that was being done on some of the early episodic uh, series for Star Trek. I, I guess that makes sense based upon the years it was. But I remember myself um, rolling basically every single VTR that I could find in, uh, in sync at our facility, as well as having the assistant in the machine room running um, and hitting play on machines just because I didn't have enough controllers on the edit system to control the number of machines we needed to minimize passes. Uh, I love some of the stories again around this time period. And really for me, uh, basically affirmed many of the things I found exciting about those days and made me want to do visual effects. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, there's, there's also a great series on Disney plus, um, light and magic covering a six part series that tells uh, the story of industrial light and magic. A lot of, uh, Really great interviews with the people who were involved and some stories that I personally hadn't heard before. I really enjoyed the series. Um, maybe the last episode was a bit uh, too much of a commercial, but still, you know, still had some interesting stuff in it. But if you haven't checked out that series on Disney Plus, I, I highly recommend it. It's uh, light and magic. Well, thanks so much for taking time to listen to the FX podcast. Thanks for hanging out while we were on our hiatus over the last several months. And we're really happy to be back. So for Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.